Okay, we are going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for joining us for this month's From the Field. We're going to be talking about soil health and how that affects the crop quality of wheat with Jared Cook from Rocky Mountain Agronomics, who is joining us under my name as well on the screen, so not to be confused. Um, I am Brittany, the Executive Director of the Idaho Wheat Commission, and I just want to remind you that this is an this is an open opportunity for you to ask questions. So you can type it into the chat at the bottom of your screen. You can use the reactions button at the bottom of your screen to raise your hand and we'll make sure your question gets asked. Or you can just unmute your microphone and I'll know that you have a question to ask Jared. So with that, we will go ahead and get started. Jared, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you betcha. It's good to be here. Um, tell us, you're, you are right out there in the thick of things right now. How is this year's crop looking? Let's start with that. As far as the crop this year, I mean, it looks great, other than it's about two weeks behind. That, that's kind of my evaluation. Some of my colleagues, we kind of all agree on that. We're about two weeks behind. And so we got, a, we got a few challenges ahead of us, I think. But I think all in all, the crop that's, that's up and established looks really healthy, really strong. So pretty excited about that. Great. So we're talking about soil health today. How, how do you define soil health? We that's one of those buzzwords that gets thrown around a lot. But what's the definition of it? You know, it's probably a good thing I'm on the record as Brittany Hurst Marchant today. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's a phenomenal question. And be right honest with you, I don't know if there is a good definition of it. Um, so the way I'm going to answer that is, is I think it's, it's very geographical. You know, from southern Idaho to northern Idaho and every, everywhere in between, you know, soils are different. Uh, management practices are slightly different. So consequently, in my opinion, I think soil health has a different meaning. Um, and so let me give you one example. I think this is a great example. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, about five years ago, I was told to have optimum soil health in our soils. We needed to have a bacterial to fungal ratio of one of one to one. And so I was like, all right, we, we can we can see what that's all about. Well, for forever and ever, a lot of a lot of industry folks were saying, well, we, we need more fungal activity. We got to have more fungus. We got to have we got to do things that support fungal activity. Well, finally, I found a lab that would actually test this for us. And so to my surprise, I, I run a couple samples through oh, five or six different samples through, through this lab to realize that we had a two to one fungal to bacterial ratio. And so that led me to think we're actually doing a lot of things right in the realm of soil health. And so having that ratio, that led me to think, okay, what are some of the other parameters? So good functional carbon, um, organic matter, those all, those all those things play into it. But I think let me give some nuts and bolts of, of how to measure soil health. And then from there, I think you can put diagnostics to what it really means is I like to use the Haney soil test method. Uh, the Haney soil test method was to develop not only to measure chemical extraction, chemical nutrients in the soil, but also to measure biological functions, which looks at soluble carbon, sugar amino acids, 
It looks at CO2 respiration, which is all biologically driven. Um, so just integrating that soil testing method into the farm can give some really awesome indicators of what soil health means to your farm specifically and to your geography specifically. Because as I've, as I've looked at the Haney soil test from all over different parts of Idaho and, and across the country, there's a drastic difference from one farm to the next on what those numbers mean. And so I think that, Brittany, that's how I would answer that question about soil health is it's geographical, uh, it's farm specific, and use, use some benchmarking tools to figure out where you're at today so you can define it for yourself. I, I don't wanna be the one that has to put that definition out there. That's fair. <laughs> so we are fortunate in Idaho, we have very volcanic soils and that produces really good wheat, really good wheat yields generally. Um, what, 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 effect, what are some of the really uh, practical effects that soil health has on the quality of the crop? The practical effects, I, I think the biggest thing is if you were to break down a plant into its elemental structure, you would find that that plant consists of 96% carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. 4% of that plant would, would be made up of nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, all of your fertilizer elements, let's call them. And so a good soil, good soil health has the capacity to deliver in abundance the carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Hydrogen, oxygen, and, and carbon, they, they can come from the atmosphere, but the soil through its biological processes can also deliver a substantial amount of soluble carbon that feeds that plant, soluble hydrogen and, and the oxygen side. So really uh, a, a dynamite functioning soil, a healthy soil can contribute to that 96% in a very robust way. So that, that's the way I look at it. And then of course, you know, good soil health also uh, looks at the, the antagonisms that might exist that can that can alter or inhibit some of your minerals from being available to the plant. And so one of our most uh, common antagonists in Southern Idaho, and I, I think all across the United States in general is bicarbonate. Bicarbonate has the, the greatest ability to, to tie up a tremendous amount of our nutrients. And so I think that needs to be considered as well in, in our overall management. Um, but soil health in, in general has the ability to buffer against some of those antagonisms and then feed the plant its essential elements so it can build out the proper amount of protein structural composition. Okay, so antagonisms. That's a word that we don't hear all the time. So talk to us about that. What are, what are some of those anti antagonisms? What, what effect do they have on crop quality and crop yield? And then also um, some of the other things that we, that we throw out, but do we really have a great definition for biological functions, um, environmental stresses? What are, some of those, what are some of those things that we know affect crop quality and crop yield? And how do we, how do we counteract them? Okay. 
Um, let's break it into two parts. Let's look at mineral antagonisms and then let's look at biological antagonisms. So first on the mineral antagonisms, you got bicarbonate. That's, we could, we could spend like a two week discourse just on this one element alone. So I, I know our time's limited. I'll, I'll just give the cliff notes. Um, but bicarbonate is HCO3, it's a negative charge. Therefore it has the ability to tie up any other positively charged element, calcium, potassium, magnesium, sodium, and even ammonium. It can tie those up in the soil and make them a plant unavailable. So when we go laying down fertilizer to help the crop, if we have a really high level of bicarbonate in the soil, that bicarbonate is an immediate antagonist that can take away the amount of fertilizer that we apply and just tie it up. Therefore, it's not plant available. So that needs to be considered. There's tools out there. There's, there's amendments that can be applied to help reduce that bicarbonate. Second antagonist that I see is chloride. A lot of our irrigation water, a lot of, lot of our natural uh, runoff, runoff issues in, in dry land settings, we can accumulate a lot of chloride. Chloride's a negative charged element, doesn't necessarily tie up other elements, but it can become, it can become the dominant anion or negative charged element that is found inside the plant. So good management tools would be tissue testing. I'm a huge fan of SAP analysis. Um, SAP analysis and tissue testing can help you identify if chloride is a limiting factor in your crop production, if it's too aggressive or too abundant. So those are the two, we'll, we'll leave it at that. There are, those are the two most um, common and most abundant mineral antagonists. But now let's look, let's talk just for a minute at about biological antagonisms, which I call disease, you know, root disease, Rhizoctonia, Fusarium, Pythium, Phytophthora, all of those diseases can inhibit plant performance, particularly wheat. You know, winter wheat that's planted late, doesn't get a good emergence in the fall, fights and struggles to come up in the spring. I always see rhizoctonia affect those plants, always. And so uh, rhizoctonia is probably the most common disease I see. It's probably one of, one of your most dominant cellulose degrading microbes in the soil. So anytime you have a lot of residue, a lot of chaff left over from the previous year, it's there degrading that residue, but when, when rhizoctonia is unmanaged, it becomes a pathogen. And so that, that's one I think guys really got to watch out for. And, and most, guy, most growers in general, I think, do a really good job of managing rhizoc, but there's things we can do also nutritionally to help manage that. Um, biological antagonist is sometimes the biology themselves based on what we apply, you know, biostimulants in the market today are really, really popular. They're really exciting and really fancy. If we're not using biostimulants properly. We can drive so much biological activity in our soils that it takes away from the plant. We create competition between the microbes and the plant. Microbes are always going to eat first, no matter what, even at the consequence of the growing cash crop. And so we got to be, I think, be pretty mindful of how, how to manage uh, biological stimulants and, and, and food sources for microbes so that doesn't happen. Okay. okay. Did I cut you off? 
Nope. No, you're good. Oh, okay. I, I figured I'd just stop right there and see if you have any other questions or need clarification on any of it. Well, I don't need clarification on it. Let's see if anyone else um, unmutes their microphone or raises their hand or anything. It looks like it looks like you did well. Brad, Bradford, do you have a question for Jared? Uh, a question for him? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. All right. One of the problems in estimating fertilizer nitrogen requirements for any crop is true for wheat, it's true for sugar beets. And that's uh, estimating the contribution from mineralized nitrogen. Nitrogen that becomes available the mineralization of soil organic matter. How do you propose to estimate that contribution? That phenomenal question. I'm going to answer it this way. My opinion, so take it for what it's worth, a few grains of salt. Uh, the best way to measure mineralization is through sap analysis. Sap analysis is the only plant diagnostic tool that measures all three forms of nitrogen. It measures nitrate, ammonium, and total N. My opinion is mineralization kicks loose ammonium and ammonia long before it ever kicks loose nitrate. And so the best way to measure when that mineralization is kicking in is by measuring ammonium in the plant. If you start seeing ammonium elevate, and you know you got high temperatures, you got great moisture, then you can kind of pretty much assume that mineralization is happening and, and that's coming to your benefit. And so over time, as you run sap analysis, you can build that historical benchmark of when mineralization is kicking in and to what level it's contributing your overall nitrogen. Okay. Scott Herman. You are unmuted. Do you have a question? Uh, this is Corey. Uh, I'm unmuted. Is uh, I'm also Brittany today. I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> is Scott on? Scott, he, you got a question? He is, but he's not asking. So go ahead, Corey. On your Rhizoc, and I, I know you've been out here and look, looked at my neighbor's stuff, Jared. I'm, this spring is weird in so many ways. I don't even know where to start, but I have never seen a single row or two rows and three foot a row or two foot a row or 10 plants be so severely stunted. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around if, if that's Rhizoctonia or if it's BYD and aphid flight or something. And the thing that's got me is I'm seeing it no matter what my previous rotation was, whether it was a oil seed crop or a cereal crop, it's, I've never seen such drastic differences, but only, you know, like two or three square feet and the other 99.9% .9 of the field is perfectly healthy. That seems really, really weird to me. Can you expand on that a little further on what you saw and what you think's going on? Yeah, so so Corey, one thing I've I've noticed out in your geography is is ridge ridge tops 
are substantially different than than swales and you'll find intermittent uh, plant plant changes from ridge tops to those swales um, and what I'm finding is on ridge tops there's there's higher percentages of rhizoc disease present but it's also related to mineral nutrition because as as I've done zone sampling you know using NDVI imaging or or just lidar technology to define zones variability in zones soil types um, each of those each of those proves a different mineral mineral nutrition composition which also leads towards disease and so I know what you're talking about about that spottiness I've seen it that could very well be from aphids in the fall vectoring uh, barley yellow dwarf virus into the wheat um, but my hunch is it's it's more rhizoctonia related um, as it relates to plant vigor, you know, it seems like the plants that got up and got really going, going well last fall are withstanding it a lot better. But the plants that were slow to emerge just didn't have quite that vigor. Um, that's where I'm seeing some of the issues. And I've often actually thought that some of it might be seed related, you know, just the quality of the seed we're planting to date. That, that gets a little controversial, but I think there's something to be said in that regard that we probably need to be looking at that. Okay. So, Jared, we're going to, there's a question in the chat. Um, it's, it's multiple questions in one question. Okay. So I'm going to break it up a little bit for you. But as a commission, about a third of our budget goes to funding research uh, through the University of Idaho and also private sectors, Utah State University as well. Um, what types of data generated by university researchers are most value, valuable to you? And how do you use or incorporate that information into your recommendations, if you do? Dude, that's heavy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, what I find the most value in is knowing, well, let me rephrase that. What I would find the most value in is better explanations of the genetics behind the plants we're growing, you know, behind hard white wheat, hard red wheat, soft white wheat, cultivars, what's, what's their genetic capability? What, how, how should we manage the plants? Are they racehorses or are they, you know, draft horses? You know, that to me, that would be tremendous in knowing to help the grower in those recommendations. Um, I don't, I think, you know, time spent studying phosphate, time spent studying nitrogen rates. To me, I, I don't know, I don't know that that's where the best return on investment is going to be. I think we need to spend more dollars understanding biological functions. I think we need to dedicate more understanding to the influence of of carbon, carbon sequestering, freeing up available carbon in the soils and what, what, the, what the inputs need to look like to make that happen quicker. Because ultimately that, that's the weakness of our soil systems here. You said earlier, Brittany, that we've got great volcanic soils, high in mineral composition. That's what we are. We are mineral, mineral dominated soils. We're not organic soils like, we, like they are in the Midwest. So our weakness is soluble carbon. So how do we how do we build more carbon quicker for the grower? 
I think that's where that's where the biggest return on investment is going to be. For those studies or for those recommendations, how site specific or recent does that data need to be in order to deliver um, applicable rec recommendations right now? Oh, I, I think it needs to be very current because I, I know what I've done. I mean, I've been in this business 16 years. I know where I was 16 years ago and I know where I am today and it's entirely different. In fact, the last five years has been entirely different on some of the progress I've, I've helped growers make in improving their biological functions and improving their carbon loads in their soils. And so it's been, it's been an evolution of change every year because as, as we set goals and we achieve goals, we're moving to the next, to the next, to the next. And so I think it takes continual updated research to really prove and validate what's driving the change and what, what needs to be done to make change. Are there types of information coming out of um, research or just past practices that are, that we at one time thought were very helpful and now are sort of limiting to the information, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, my opinion, I mean, like say this could get real controversial as well, but the, the, the old traditional old school methods of taking care of a plant that's old school, you know, we need this many pounds of N, this many pounds of P, this many pounds of K, and we got to have this fungicide and that insecticide. That's old news. If, if growers want to adopt regenerative ag practices, if they want to become more sustainable, if they want to promote healthier soils, we got to look at things different. It's not, a, it's not about pounds of inputs in, it's how can we make the soil work for us instead of us working for the soil that ultimately grows the plant. And so that, that's, that's kind of where I focus things. That's where I spend a lot of my effort and my mind, mind races there often is, is how, how do we get the soil system working for us? Instead, my opinion, I, I think we've been the slave to the soil for far too long. And so as we, as we look at new testing methods, as we look at um, different ways of analyzing the plant, as we look at more efficient fertilizers, um, new biostimulant products, all of those change the game drastically. And so the information that the universities could put out, that industry could put out that support that framework, I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge win-win, not only for the grower, but for ag retail. So we have, in the past couple of years, obviously we had a terrible drought two years ago. Um, followed by significant snowfall moisture this year. What are some of the challenges that, that a shift like that um, might cause with soil health? And what are some red flags that growers should be looking for this year? Um, I think just, just with the abundance of moisture comes a lot of leaching effect. You know, a lot of downward movement to the soil with, with clean water, no antagonism in it. Um, that'll move nitrogen. That'll move some of your cations out of the soil profile. And so we could see a lot of our nutrition that was fall applied in deeper soil depths. Um, a lot of guys all over the southern Idaho and even into eastern Idaho had a lot of snow mold issues. 
um, forcing them to have to replant. That's that breaks my heart because there's a lot of gorgeous wheat last fall that was just taken away by that that disease. Um, so that's challenging in and of itself. Uh, my hunch is that I don't know. It's just my gut feels that we're going to get hot really fast. We we had a good wet spring, good great great winter, great winter precip, but Mother Nature is going to show us how hot she can get really quick. Um, so consequently, a lot of the a lot of the surface moisture we had is going to burn up quick, which I think we're already seeing that, which puts pressure on the subsoil moisture that we've kind of replenished. So hopefully we can hold on to that a little bit and we get some rain. That's what we really need. So if you can rub your uh, crystal ball and give us an idea of how much rain you got coming, Brittany, that would be ideal. I'll, I'll do whatever I can to get yeah. rain, Jared. <laughs> My my abilities are a little limited there, but I'll do my best. Do we, so we're also coming out of, I get this confused sometimes, we're coming out of La Nina, a, a three-year La Nina, and going into El Nino. Um, do we need different management strategies as we move from La Nina into El Nino and those, those weather changes? Well, I'll tell you this, I've never met La Nina or El Nino in person, <laughs> so it, it's hard to say, but yeah, I, I think we need to develop a uh, management strategy that is centered on flexibility. You know, one of the common practices I like to implement is instead of putting, like when it comes to nutrition, because we manage our plants through environmental stresses with nutrition. So one of the things, rather than putting all your dollars out up front, in pre-plant fertilizer, side dress fertilizer, banded fertilizer. Let's hold some dollars back that gives us flexibility to manage in season with. And so that that's something I think growers need to take a hard look at is, is how do I liberate a few dollars to, to put me to in-season management? Because my opinion is we start, we start really strong in our production practices, but we finish weak. You know, the, the, the second half of a grain crop is as important as the front half, but all of our dollars are spent in the front half. So I, I see as much yield gained in the back half with good sound management. Um, so I don't know, I just, you're, you're getting a lot of my opinion today, which hopefully is not too out there in left field, but but that's that's where I think we need to focus is, is the, the back half finish is how, how do we, how do we get it? How do I keep our plants healthy through the reproductive growth stages? Because that's where the majority of your stress resides is, is in the back half, which that's where the money's made. Right. Okay. Well, we've hit our 30 minute mark. I'm just going to give everyone a second. Does anyone have a question for Jared? It doesn't look like it. So it looks like they either all agree with your opinion, Jared, or you did a really good job of explaining um, all of your points or both. Or none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that. Um, if you have one thing to just summarize all of this for growers, what would it, what, what would you say? If I had one thing to summarize everything we talked about? Yes. Uh, be an active manager, be an active participant in growing the crop from the day it's planted to the day it's harvested. 
you know, take a vested interest in the plant and let, you know, come, come to be buddies with the plant till they get harvested. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jared, for joining yeah. us. Thank you. Oh, Corey, do you have a question? Well, nobody else is talking, so I'll, I'll keep talking because Jared helps my neighbor and we've been talking quite a bit about this, this nitrogen and where it is and where it should be and how leachable our soils are. And I don't know, I've been 10, 15 years of back and forth on, on when the best time to put nitrogen on these dry land soils when we have, I don't know, silt loams with CECs and I don't know, the high teens or whatever you want to say. I, I've heard the Ag PhD boys talk about holding nitrogen according to your CEC. I don't know if that's correct. I don't know if a lot of things are correct, but I also know nitrogen on dry land has to be about the three or four foot level come heading time because that's where that plant's drawing moisture from. And I'm not convinced we can spring apply nitrogen here and get it that deep with the amount of rainfall we get between mid-April or this year, mid-May and the end of June. So what what's your thoughts? Is this a is this a irrigated versus dry land, sandy versus loamy soil? I mean, there's a lot of variables there, and I just I, I don't know if, what the right answer is. Well, if I had if I had my crystal ball, Corey, I would have the right answer, but I don't. Uh, well, I I just. You know, my, my vision has been, Corey, is just to be, like I said there in that last remark, an active participant in trying to understand the plant. And what I, what I know, this is what I absolutely know to be true, our soils contribute a lot of nitrogen, but it comes down to an assimilation problem. Nitrogen comes into the plant and it bottlenecks because we lack other elements. We lack molybdenum, we lack iron, copper, you know, manganese we lack the micronutrients that allows nitrogen to become a protein and so it's not about the abundance of n in the soil it's about the assimilation of that n inside the plant that's where the value is driven home and so as we can look at nitrogen and pounds of nitrogen in the system all day but if we neglect the micronutrients if we neglect the sulfur if we neglect the carbon that's where we get burned is because it's it's the system that we have to keep rolling, not the individual element. And so that's what I'd tell you, Corey, is to focus focus on that on your farm. Come to an understanding of are those micronutrients limiting? Is your carbon limiting? Is sulfur limiting? Because if if those are limiting, all the nitrogen in the world isn't going to do you a bit of good. You go put 500 units out there, and it's still 500 units unused. I'm interested in assimilation because end of the day, it's the protein that pays the bills. How's that? Is that, is that a big enough challenge for you? I was just saying, I, th I think you just made more questions. Not <laughs> dude, let's roll. Dude, let's roll. I got all day, man. I'll sit here all day. Let's go. No, dude, this, no, I appreciate free, it. Hey, this, this is free information. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> well I'll, I'll quit bugging you for now uh, anybody, no, you got you got two more questions in you you have to ask them i know you have to 
<laughs> I, I could sit and talk talk on this all day too, but uh, well, it's yeah, being recorded. It's being recorded, so it might be, <laughs> dude. This might be the next TikTok uh, uh, big hit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If I really start opening my mouth, it might be. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I will say in, in Jared's behalf, I, uh, my neighbor's got some pretty, pretty looking wheat. So I, I don't know what whatever you're doing seems to be working, but balancing the economics of everything on on 50 bushel wheat country is still tough, in my opinion. So it's a uh, there's there's a lot of variables there so absolutely Corey. all right Corey, are you gonna are you gonna ask your other two questions or are you stopping there oh no no i i don't know which two to ask i got 10 million of them so <laughs> you say i got all day man i'll answer questions all day but like I say take it for what it's worth well, other than we got a lot of Britneys on this, oh, maybe we fixed them all. I was gonna say, somebody else surely got some questions. <laughs> Jared, Jared's a pretty smart guy. Take advantage of him, you guys, if you're on here. Nah, not that smart, Corey. Zach, do you do you have questions? Yeah, if that's all right, Jared. Hey, Zach Man. Miller, um, up, buddy. So, question I have is. There's a bunch of farmers here, and I'm obviously not one of them, but one of the things that troubles me um, is we hear all about carbon sequestration, the need to lock down carbon, changing our tillage practices, all these things. I get it, uh, and you know about how deep I would get it, but it feels like it's all being generated from the Midwest, and you just talked about we have mineralized soils here, we have a different environment here, but it feels like we're getting a one-size-fits-all pushed down on us. And I worry a lot about the law of unintended consequences that USDA, the government pushes a program down on us and it doesn't work. So as I get the opportunity to sit in some of those meetings, I don't know what questions to ask, but I have this underlining concern about Idaho getting hurt or our Western soils getting hurt as a ramification of a one size fits all. So what are some of your thoughts about things that from a policy perspective, just raw, um, just basics of elementals of what we need here to really take in all the money that's going to flow our way, but not to hurt ourselves as we adapt to a new world that's forced upon us. I think the biggest, the biggest identifier, Zach, is we need to understand how much, or Mr. Miller, we need to understand, Mr. Miller, how much carbon we're actually sequestering in a given crop cycle. You know, I, I, I've been on these conversations and in the Midwest, they all were sequestering, you know, one pound per day per acre foot. And then automatically when the West is talking about, we're sequestering 0 0.10 pounds of carbon per day per acre foot. That, that's kind of the scenario, right? We automatically get cut substantially. And I'm not so sure we don't sequester more carbon than the Midwest. You know, because what they have going against them or what they have in their favor is humification. They're, they're turning more water-soluble carbon quicker. We're a little slower process, but I think we have more refined carbon. We've got more, more of a robust carbon pool. That is yet to be discovered. 
I think that's where the industry needs to focus. And that's what the, the big corporations that are pushing this, they need, to, they need to dive into that research. They need to understand what types of carbon we're sequestering and quit looking at this as a carbon umbrella because there's so many forms of carbon. It's not, that, that's just, that is a broad statement. That's like salt. Hey, Zach, put salt on your food. You know, it's, what's that actually mean? And so, I don't know, you, you get me round up real quick when we start talking about this, because I think we're getting shafted to a degree on that end of things. And I wish, I wish there was more clarifying parameters or, or more protocols in place that identifies our strengths of what we sequester for carbon in our systems. I don't know if that makes any sense. I, I get, I get so wrapped up and talking fast and thinking quick. I don't know if I make any sense, but hopefully there's a few nuggets there for you, Zach. Always my friend. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Um, but yeah, I, I just think there needs, well, you guys from farm bureaus in probably, probably can help a lot in the, in the refinement of the protocol is my thinking. Well, I think Farm Bureau, I think NOG, I think all of the groups, we all have a stake in that. And we just want to make sure we're asking the right question. Brittany, I don't want to, I got another question though. Go ahead. Uh, Go ahead. That's, right. that's what we're so, here for. Kind of going on those same lines, Jared. I mean, we're talking to a lot of, this is a wheat call. And so we've got a lot of producers that are doing, uh, like Corey, that are dry land and they're doing rotation into that. We've got a lot of different tillage practices, but in Idaho, especially on the southern end, a lot of it's rotation into beets, onions, potatoes. So that's one of my other challenges is, is it's, and you might be ahead of me there, but how do we address tillage? I mean, we're hearing right now that any tillage is bad tillage, but yet we also know that a potato is one of the most uh, nutrient dense for economic value you can get to. So how do we, from your perspective as an agronomist, looking at soil health, what, what's the sweet spot? What are, I mean, I know there's no perfect answer, but what are some of the talking points in reverse to talk about a healthy not just soil system, but nutrient delivery to the human race. And how do we square some of those things with healthy soils and providing optimum calories? Um, that's a good question. You ask good questions. I, now, that, now that you're saying this, I remember you from college, always on the front row, always asking the hard questions. Well, you know, manure does have nutrients in it too, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, this is what I see in Idaho is, and there's a lot of guys being very successful with residue management. But if, if we don't till, we get an accumulation of residue that becomes a green bridge, a, a habitat for all sorts of pests, diseases, you name it. So in our systems, a lot of times tillage is a huge benefit for us to get that plant debris incorporated in the top profile. That's a huge win for us. If we just let it sit there, oftentimes it oxidizes. It doesn't go anywhere. Well, it goes the atmosphere is what it does. Um, so, so tillage is a good tool, in my opinion, here. It's the excess of tillage that I think hurts us. It's like taking the billows to the fire on your organic carbon. You know, it's just every time you till that soil opens up uh, carbon to the atmosphere and we, we, we oxidize it, we lose it. So that's, so anything we can do to reduce the passes or the trips of tillage, I think is a good thing. Um, if you are in a heavy tillage system, integrate some cover crops or integrate the regrowth of, of, your, of your wheat crop. To me, I think that's the best cover crop there is. Most guys are doing it. We've been doing it for, shoot, ever since I was a little kid, 
you know, as soon as the combines finish the field, we turn the water on, sprout everything that was there, and that becomes our cover crop. So cover crop in Idaho is nothing new. We've been doing it for decades. But can we do it better? Could we turn that regrowth into something more? I think that's an opportunity. Um, so till where you have to, till reduce till when you can. Turn, turn what's already into the, your production system into a higher value, like that wheat regrowth, barley regrowth. Um, those are just opportunities just handed to us if we'll just maximize them. And I, like, I don't know, Zach, if I've skirted your question because I'm scared of really getting in the depth, but that's what I see. Great question, by the way. I'll get you back. This is public and you just, you put me on the hot seat. All right, thank you so much, Jared. I think that is all of the questions that we have um, so far. So we don't wanna keep you longer, but thank you so much for joining us. For any of you on this call, thank you again for tuning in. And if you want to send this to, or share this with someone, the video will be available on our YouTube channel and the audio will be available on our podcast channel. Both of those are Idaho Wheat. You can also find it at www.idahowheat.org. They'll be up later today, early tomorrow. And please feel free to share any of our past from the fields and join us next month for a conversation about grain markets with Dr. Jali Etienne from the University of Idaho. Um, and she's the endowed chair of risk management. So watch for the information on that and we will see you next month. Thank you all. Thank you. All right.